For our scripture reading, let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. I'll read the first 11 verses of that. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you for you and your descendants. I will give all uh, to, uh, to you and your descendants. I will give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelled in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he was seen there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw that there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of my people might, have, might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. But then Isaac, I'm sorry, that's the end, the end of the reading. Now the title of the message this morning is Worldly Intimidation of the Family. And I'm thinking of worldly, the worldly intimidation of the Christian family. We see this abounding today. We see things happening in our culture today that we would have, we wouldn't have thought possible uh, just 20 years ago. Although there was some unrest in that day, it just seems like there's even more uh, today. We think of uh, the uh, pro-abortion movement, which. would try to intimidate us over uh, individual freedom and uh, dominion as if uh, as if in trying to save the lives of little babies that we were uh, enslaving everyone else and not allowing them to develop and to mature as they would want to as they would like to do uh, we think of the the uh, obstinance of the world to uh, unbe- or to believers in uh, in the sense that they, they demand this word diversity today, and uh, if we if we are obstinate at all in the faith. 
accuse of this urge to diversity, and then they accuse us of hate. Well, we think of how uh, there was a Supreme Court justice that was almost assassinated, and how the uh, the leaders of the land are finding it difficult to uh, increase the pay or the the budget for protection for such people as this. And especially then against the household of faith, uh, we see this insistence that you and I and we uh, surrender our values to the satanic, whether it's pro-life or um, family values, homeschooling. We see this, this uh, pressure that's building against those that have some values and would uh, would seek to overturn this. I know ever since I was, ever since Susan and I were young, a young couple, we've been fighting uh, for the right to educate our children the way we would want. And there's this insistence that that uh, that uh, you can be Christians. They say you can have your faith, but just don't let it influence anything else in your life, like the way you rear your children, or the way you run your business, or the freedom that you think that you ought to have. And so it's down to the the. Uh, idiotic level of uh, demanding that people that run bakeries um, make uh, make uh, cakes that testify uh, ingloriously, infamously to uh, sodomy and these kinds of things like this. There is a there is a, a worldly intimidation that we see all around us uh, today, uh, where whether it. Uh, has to do with, we think of the thousands of people that have been put out of work, well, have lost their jobs because they they failed to go along with uh, a certain medical protocol of the modern day that um, the people in power uh, have adopted. But uh, it's not even uh, it's not even truly medically proven that these kinds of things are necessary. And yet, people have been fired. People have lost their jobs. I think of the military, tens of thousands of. Um, people have been drummed out of the military over these kinds of things. So there is uh, that we see that we we live in a day of growing tyranny and absolutism, and that is affecting the, the Church of Christ. Well, we see the same thing uh, here in this account of of uh, Isaac and his family, and we see how the intimidation of the world. Now, at this point, they just were not a mighty people. They were basically one large wealthy family, like Abraham, and they were living in the southern part of the land of Israel as we know it today. Uh, it was not a, uh, it was not a real um, lush part of the land. <clears throat> and as they were living there, they felt the intimidation of the world around them. And uh, we see here with Isaac that he felt this intimidation that led to a lie about his wife that reproduced or or duplicated the lie that Abraham had lived with. And I suppose that Abraham's weakness in lying about Sarah was uh, ironically, sadly, a a justification in Isaac's mind for lying about Rebekah in the next generation. Uh, but whatever, as we see this, as we see this story unfold, and we evaluate how the intimidation of the world can affect our families, and, and we as as parental leader, family leaders, leaders, as we look at that and consider that, um, we see the context of this in terms of this passage. What's the 
part of Philistia, it says in verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. We, we have another, a further um, coincidence of this in verse 23 that we didn't read, because there it said that the, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. So these were days where God was making these amazing supernatural appearances to Isaac and his family, just as he had appeared to Abraham and his family a generation earlier. And so we might say to ourselves, if God had appeared to me like this, I would be brimming with confidence. I would be willing to run the race that was set before me at whatever speed God called me to run. Uh, and I would, if I did grow weary, I would not grow weary in well-doing because I'd have the confidence of this promise of the Lord ringing in my ears. And it's this context, this background that, that uh, gives a taste to what uh, to Isaac's fear and to the intimidation that he felt. So God, uh, after verse 2, God repeats to him these promises that he made to Abraham. And this is what, this is the Bible's pattern. God reiterates his promises to each generation so that they might not have to remember it simply by their memories, but that they might have these things alive in their minds. And so uh, God said, dwell in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. Uh, and I will be with you. Uh, with you and your descendants after you, I will give you all these lands. So that even though they were a minority in the land, even though they were they were a, a significant family, but that was all they were. But God cloaked their minds, or God uh, gave them this colorful context of where not only would they live here and abide here as a minority in the land, but they would own all the land, that they would have the strength and the ability to be in the dominant family in this whole land. And so you can imagine, it's much like we are today. We live, and we have these great and glorious promises over our heads that one day the Church of Christ will be spread out across the face of this land in terms of its influence. And we see the, we see the churches today, we see a visible influence across the land, but when we look at, when we ask ourselves, where where is the real influence? Where are the people that are, uh, full-born biblical and committed to these things. There aren't many. And so it's very easy for us to feel the same kind of minority status that Isaac's family felt in this day. And yet God called them to set their minds to transport their thinking to a different era, to a different place, to a different providence where they were actually the dominant uh, crew or people in this area. Because he, he gave them to all the lands, and he said, I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give to you or your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So even more than the immediate land. God makes these grandiose, broad promises enveloping the whole world. So, verse 6, six says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. After we hear the promises of God ringing in our ears, we all have to return to our normal lives. And sometimes, when we return to our normal lives, we say, well, here we are. You know, we don't have all the things that God has promised us. I have to slug it out tomorrow by going
job. I have to slug it out with kids that sometimes won't listen to me, with neighbors that disagree with me, uh, on and on and on. So, so Isaac dwelled in Gerar in that light. And uh, the men of the place began to ask him about his wife uh, because she was uh, a beautiful woman and um, it was not made plain to them at that time what the family structure was or, or the identities of the family within the family. And so the, the, uh, the neighboring tribesmen began to ask Isaac, uh, who is this woman that is... Uh, we know that has such an air of nobility, such a beauty. Who, who could she be? Now, how does Isaac answer them? Does he answer them with confidence? Does he, he say, well, this is my wife to whom God has made promises and God is our protector? If he was a little, if he was a little bit afraid of their intimidation, he could have invoked the power of God and said, you know, the, the, we are people of the, God, of the Lord, the Lord God. Um, who created the heavens and the earth, who thunders forth, and who uh, can bless those who bless us and curse those who curse. He could have said something like that, invoking the power of God over their situation. But instead, he reverted to the flesh. Instead of, instead of thinking in the spirit, he resorted to the flesh. He was afraid. He was afraid. He was intimidated by the people around him. He was intimidated by their values. He, the people of God, often look about us and we see what's there. We see what courses through the minds of paganism. We're, we're often smart people. We have an intelligence about ourselves. But instead of our brains being, being infused with faith and hope and charity, we let our minds be intimidated by the forces around us and the realism. We see how people treat each other. We see, we see the injustice of this world. Is it, is it, uh, uh, is it uh, not right for us to conjecture that these people of violence might be violent against us? Of course not. Now, we ought to also take into consideration the promises of God and live more boldly. But we are too often inclined to live by the flesh instead of by the spirit. And so that's what, uh, that's what Isaac did here. And right away he reverted to a lie, uh, lest it, it says the Bible tells us what he thought, because it says, lest the men of this place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful. To behold, and so this tells us. This describes for us the uh, Isaac's fatherly fear, and how the the fear of intimidation, in a sense, totally subverted his faith in terms of the way that he was living in the world. Um, God calls us. We have to remember, God calls us to live by faith. That faith means that we don't. Uh, have it in our hands. Faith are those things which are hoped for. We don't have them in our hand. We, we hope for the promises of God, the bounty that will be ours someday and, and uh, to our people someday. And the, the secret is that God works through that faith. When we are faithful, when we believe these things on the part of the Lord, even though we don't have them yet, that's the genius of the Christian experience. 
But uh, in this case, uh, what uh, what Isaac and Rebecca were doing was much more obvious than holding hands or just maybe a, a t- touch on the shoulder or something like that. Abimelech evidently uh, caught them in public either kissing, they were doing something that was was way beyond the familiar. It was very, way beyond what friends would do with one another. Now, I take this as a positive thing. Uh, I've often thought I would love to be a millionaire who would carry around $100 bills in his wallet. And when I saw a husband and wife walking into the grocery store or something like that, holding hands, showing some of filial affection for each other. I would love to go up and say, thank you for thank you for showing your love of each other. Here's a hundred dollar bill to just enjoy this day and, and keep it up. You know, keep showing this affection for your husband or wife. Affection between husbands and wives is wonderful. It's lovely. We have too little of it in the world. And in this case, uh, Isaac, it's a lesson for us all. Isaac was such a man and Rebecca was such a woman that uh, they were willing to be a little bit risky or frisky with their public affections with one another. And even in this case where they were generally intimidated by the culture around them. Sometimes Christians uh, think that they have to, that the, the, the more, quote, conservative they live, uh, which in a sense means cold with each other, uh, isolated from each other, a total lack of emotion. We think that that is the, the better way to be. We don't want to show anything of ourselves and our affection for each other to the watching world. And I would argue that that is the wrong thing. It's not based on the scriptures. It's not based on what we see here. Isaac was affectionate with his wife in some, in some sense in a public way that gave away the idea that they were a married couple. And on the basis of this, then uh, Abimelech brings them up on this basis and challenges Isaac. I know that you're married with this woman because look at the way you behave with her. I saw the way you behave with her in such and such a situation. So I take these two things up very uh, very seriously, very significantly, that there's a beauty in the faith and also there is an affection in the faith which the world often does not know. I've told you before that I used to, one of the classes that I taught at Christ College of Virginia was a, a, a class in beauty, a class in uh, uh, the fine arts. And one of the exercises that I used to do was I used to take the kids, I, I shared this once, maybe once before in a sermon, but I used to take the students and line them up on a table. Everybody would sit across from each other, and then I'd, I'd uh, exhort them to uh, look very sullen at each other and, and consider the, how beautiful they looked or how ugly they looked based upon the sullenness. And then I'd say, okay, now I want you to smile. I want you to, I want your eyes to light up. I want you to look at each other uh, with uh, that light in your eyes and with joy in your hearts. And I want you to consider the beauty of the face across from you based upon that look. And, and it, it, was a, it was a foolish little example, but they, the, all the students were really amazed at the difference, the clash, the 180-degree contrast between the faces that they saw that were dark and sullen versus the faces that are bright, were bright and uh, uh, showed forth kind of a happy heart. 
Well, you see, it's not hard for the family of faith to have a greater beauty at that level. It's amazing how often we, all of us feel like the glass is half full and we only look at ourselves in terms of our blemishes. But what happens if you begin to think of yourself as you are above with Christ? You know, Christ says, set your mind, on, uh, set your mind above. See yourself as you are represented before the Father in Christ. And when we meditate upon ourselves in that light, it cannot help but build confidence in whatever natural beauty God has given you. And I'm always amazed. One of the things in when you study Christian uh, uh, anthropology or the study of man uh, from a Christian perspective, you realize that uh, just because we are not all of that paradigm of a Hollywood kind of paradigm where the men are all handsome and the women are all beautiful. Uh, there, there is a difference between the Hollywood paradigm and the way God created us. God created us with individuality. And there is a serious beauty to individuality. Just because if you stop comparing yourselves to the some archetype that you have in mind, but rather to who you are, and then you consider yourself as you are in Christ. Uh, how are you in Christ? Well, you're perfectly justified before the eyes of the Father. The Father loves you because you are perfectly righteous. He, he, you, are, you reflect that person like Adam and Eve that he created you to be. And so it should not surprise us that the family of faith has a beauty to it like we see represented here with Rebecca and with Sarah. Evidently, they had some natural beauty, but that was enhanced by the cosmetics of Christ, if you will, or the cosmetics of grace. Brothers and sisters, if we live not as people who are judged, people who have the weight of the world upon their shoulders, if we live happily in Christ and have smiles upon our faces and open our eyes, it will make us ten times more attractive just physically than we would be otherwise. And these are the attributes, or these should be the attributes of the people of Christ. And then if we adopt the affection that we have learned from Christ, the love of the body of Christ, the love of each other, the affection of each other, it's a, it's a win-win situation. It's a, it's a wonderful situation. It's a delightful day for us if we are self-consciously Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 16, Paul says that he no longer considers anyone from the perspective of the flesh, but he only considers people according to the Spirit. And then he goes on, the next verse saying, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have become new. So we see the perspective, we see the psychology of Paul as it, as, as it comes to uh, our personal appearance, our personal caricature, the way we hold ourselves. Paul was all in on the idea of salvation. It wasn't just theology. It was the way he thought about everyone throughout the day, throughout the week. And so he would see people as saints. So you, I, when I preached on the doctrine of justification and its psychological benefits, I've talked about this, how we ought to have, we ought to have the perspective.
perspective of grace in the way we deal with each other, in the way we see each other. And so we see some of this reflected in uh, the covenant family here, I'm sure, of, uh, of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, the rest of the world at this, t- this, this time did not know anything about forgiveness, about real forgiveness. They did not know anything about the living God in the sense that they had fellowship with him. But this only took place in the family of faith. There were, there were millions of people alive at that time, but there were few, very few, only the family of faith that had any insights of faith about them. But that was the benefit of the covenant family and, uh, and Isaac. Well, the fourth thing we see here in this passage is the the providential way that God uses what we call natural law, and uh, the Bible says that God uh, that God has written uh, the law, certain laws of of reality, into the nature of things, and so that's often called uh, natural law. Well, here we are. We're living in this pagan framework where there. That where Abraham, I mean Isaac, really feels this intimidation. But we see Abimelech testify to the fact that he, even though he's a pagan, that he's being constrained, that he's in fear himself of certain things, of judgments, that he ought not to have in many senses. In verse 10, Abimelech says, What is this that you've done to us? One of my people might have assume laying with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us what is this guy this pagan talking about guilt for why do people that, that don't acknowledge the lord why in the world do they talk about guilt i thought they didn't want to hear anything about the lord i thought they didn't want to live as if the lord was true i thought they wanted to live free they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do they didn't want to be coerced or confined by any ethical uh, outline or a paradigm of life. They wanted to be free, which in their definition means totally unrestrained by anything that might press it upon them. Why is this? Why is this king talking about guilt? Well, you see, it's because he's a creation of God, whether he admits it or not, and on that basis, he feels the fingerprints of the Lord upon him, upon his people, and upon their lives. And so even though he's not a believer, he believes in some kind of sanctity of marriage. Even though he's not a believer, he fears adultery. He feels he fears the judgment of the gods, as it were, or the gods that whatever whoever the gods were of Philistia that he acknowledged. He, feel, he fears this even though he is living wantonly apart from the real God, the living God, even Jehovah, the God of creation. And so we need to be aware that even as our civilization presses it upon us, that they will have constraints upon them even though they do not acknowledge the God that we acknowledge. And that sometimes comes as a bit of revelation to us. I'm, I'm utterly amazed today with as wanton and as uh, ungodly as our culture is around us, I'm utterly amazed that the culture feels the constraints that it does. Why? I'm, 
for a lot of different video programs on YouTube, usually historical programs uh, that, that have been made up. But I'm amazed at the, the, the kind of, uh, if I can call it Puritanism, that you see on places like YouTube, because God, ostensibly, the God of the Bible does not reign there. I got watching a lot of, of uh, sailing uh, videos a couple years ago. I was just amazed that these these people who had gotten lived their whole lives upon the open seas with the sailboats and this sort of thing. I've always loved the ocean, so that kind of caught my eye. But um, it, it's amazing at the at the lack of uh, lasciviousness, the lack of nudity, uh, the lack of whatever we might uh, uh, understand as a sinful lifestyle. Uh, they they uh, I, you can't get a program on YouTube. As far as I know, well, that is uh, that is marked by debauchery and uh, uh, satanic kinds of things. Why is that? There's no church that has any power over them. Uh, the 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 uh, the agencies that supervise YouTube, they're not Puritan. Why are these people? And, and you sometimes hear things you can and cannot do. Same thing on television. Oh, we can't say that. In, in such and such a way, some talk show or something like that, because of these these uh, restraints that are in the air. Well, in terms of the worldly intimidation of the family, we need to be aware that even though people are not going to church, even though they are not doing this or doing that, that God will still, by his common grace, restrain them from being as bad as they could possibly be. And we can live with some confidence that even if people are not touched by saving grace, that they will be touched by the restraining graces of the Lord. So that we ought not to fear the intimidation that we often fear. And uh, we, can, uh, we can approach this somewhat humorously, really, by challenging them, by making fun of them, that, uh, the same way that I've done in the sermon here, where, uh, you know, you, I've said to people today, uh, it's almost like you people are living in New England. Why? Why? Is, where do you get these restraints from? Why are you afraid to really live like you want to live? And I'm talking about talking. I'm talking about the sodomite community. The communities of real uh, rebellion. The Marxists in our midst, who still will restrain themselves. They they they, they press against the the limits, and yet they they also restrain themselves. I when uh, I won't go into the modern political program, but it's just amazing. I, I know when some some Christians were just undone when Mr. Biden was elected, fearing that that, that the uh, chaos would fall upon them. I said to them uh, that you'll be surprised, you'll be amazed at how God will restrain this man from doing all that he wants to do. And it really, it really is amazing with holy both houses of Congress and the presidency, how God has chinked away uh, bit by bit and restrained the, the liberalism of America from doing what it wanted to do. It's just utterly amazing because God is sovereign and God is in control. And God protects us from these intimidations, uh, especially as they would affect our families. And so... Mm, uh, Abimelech, in the end, verse 11, if you notice here, verse 11, Abimelech says, he charges people saying, he who touches
because of the way this thing, this this story developed, or this account developed. In the end, even though even though they're intimidated, the end result of that is that they have more protection. They have the, the death sentence of sentence uh, proclaimed against anybody that that messes with them in the whole kingdom. Because God is sovereign, God rules, and God takes care of his people. Had God not promised that he would take care of Isaac and his family? Had he not appeared before him and made this as a special indulgence in Isaac and Rebecca? Yes! Are we then surprised that he does it? We ought to live with this kind of thinking in our minds. And so we see in the end that God blesses Rebecca and the family. In verse 12, we didn't read this, but it says that Isaac, verse 12 says that Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that the, the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. God made, God in his sovereignty made Isaac's sheep more productive, his goats more productive, his crops more productive. We we do not, uh, we should not take away the unseen mighty hand of the Lord which works in our lives if we fear him and walk according to his covenant. Not just outwardly, but inwardly, where we seek his face and we earnestly desire that we can come and worship him like we're doing here today. And out of that, God will bless us. God will show us amazing things generationally that we couldn't even believe. I remember as a young man, I, I worried very much that um, that uh, what, what would my children do? I, I knew I didn't have a lot of money to endow them, to help them to start businesses, that sort of thing. Well, both of my boys are doing much better than I did economically. And I marvel at the kindness and the goodness of the Lord in that. And so ought we all. Now it's amazing when we think about this intimidation factor in life. It's amazing then when we switch gears from ourselves to our Lord Jesus and look at his life in light of these things. It really is amazing. Because uh, the Father and the Son had made an eternal covenant together, much like in this case, God had spoken, made an appearance before Isaac. Uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had covenanted together to accomplish certain things. But in terms of the incarnation and the coming of Christ into this world, think about the intimidation factor for our Lord Jesus Christ. When he came into the world, he had a perfect knowledge of what was to come. And as he came into the world, as he dedicated himself to becoming flesh and to living uh, here as a true human being, he knew uh, what was in store for him. He knew that he represented absolute righteousness, and he knew that the world was a wicked place that was going to be hell-bent, if you will, against him. Not only did he know that, but he knew what the results would be. He knew that in the end that he would be rejected by all. I think of our Lord Jesus, and 
for one another. Uh, sometimes we find a, uh, a marital love between each other. How, sometimes we, we find the parental love and, and uh, child love for one another. We all, in that, experience more than our Lord Jesus did. And yet, despite the alienation, despite the intimidation of our Lord, we see in him a greater determination to run the race, to, to live the course that he had set out for himself, that the Father had set out for him. We see the greatest possible kinds of determination that just melts our hearts. How can Christ come into a world which had, was he says in the New Testament was enmity against him, was hatred against him. How could he come and, and walk against and fight against the flow of human emotion, which by comparison to the love of God was a hatred and a contempt, not only from those whom, from whom he might expect it, but from the very highest points of that society, uh, from the aristocracy of the society, from those who knew the most, who had learned the most, who theoretically were the most ethical, the most studied, the most theological. And it was from these people that Jesus received this great and huge, terrible contempt. And yet his determination, he said, his face like a flint, the Old Testament says, and like his face like a flint into the face of the storm. And live through it, despite the alienation, despite the intimidation, for us, that we might find a way to inherit eternal life from the hand of the Father. Let us emulate Jesus Christ. Let us believe in Jesus Christ. Let us believe in the gospel. Let us believe, let that, let that faith and belief uh, fill our lives. Let it really affect us. We can either be that glum face that looks across the table at us without any faith, without any hope, just holding on to the worst parts of our lives, the, the least fruit of our lives, the greatest poverty of our lives, or we can look across the table at each other with the eyes of faith and the eyes of hope and the eyes of charity, the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, let our families be informed by Christ and not by the darkness. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst bless us with the eyes of faith. We pray that you would give us this mindset amongst ourselves that we could live based upon this account of Isaac and Rebekah. Oh Lord, help us to receive the fruits of thy covenant love as as Isaac and Rebekah ultimately did, even here in Gerar, their flocks began to multiply, their crops grew a hundredfold. Oh, Lord, we pray that we might believe thy truth, thy promises, thy hope. We pray that we might believe the Father, especially inasmuch as he has bestowed upon us his only begotten Son, even Jesus Christ, and all of his wealth and all of his riches, he holds righteousness in his hands like the riches of God. Bless us, 
Amen.